should mention I've got uh, prayer cards just out on the table as well. That's an image of God's grace. (laughs) Despite this, that, unbelievable. But uh, on the back of the card, there's a probably more coherent explanation of of the ministry that we're involved in than than I just gave uh, to to David. So please do help yourself to that. If you want to get updates, we're happy to to stay in touch. Just sign the form that's out there. And uh, to clarify my unhelpful comment about the books, what David said is about right. Five, six pound for the bigger ones, one, two pound for the little ones, total flexibility. If you haven't got cash and you want a book, please take it. If you've got too much cash and you want a book, happy to do a deal. So uh, that's, that, that's great and it will be a, a bit blessing not to carry those home. So the beginning of Babylon, this is not, as you know, my title, right? Like this is your title that you've given to me. And I had to chuckle when I got it because uh, it reminded me of 15 years ago when we just moved over from the States. We were living in South London, uh, two little girls, one coming any week, any day practically. And I got a phone call from a a little brethren assembly uh, down the road. I won't name it because this will probably be online. And they said, uh, this was Friday evening. They said, uh, we understand you're in the area and available to speak. I said, yes. They said, how about this Sunday? I said, well, actually, yes, I am free this Sunday. They said, well, our speaker uh, has had to cancel. Uh, So if you could come, we would be so grateful. I said, well, actually, I can come. I'd be very happy to come. Uh, Great, yes, got the address and everything. Oh, we're in the middle of a series. Would you mind continuing the series? I said, well, uh, it's Friday evening, but I'll try my best. What's the series? They said, Genesis. We're looking at uh, characters in Genesis, And so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I mean, it's going to be a challenge, but let's go for it, whatever. So I said, what's the the, uh, passage or or character? They said, Genesis 5, 21 to 24. Enoch. I said, do you mean Enoch? They said, yes. Would you be willing to preach on Enoch? I said, what, in 47 hours? (laughs) That's fairly soon. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll try my best. And if I don't feel like it's worth preaching, I'll preach something else, but I'll try. And they said, that's great. Thank you so much. So I studied all Saturday and and worked on that and actually uh, went for it and it went well. And I've been good friends with that church ever since. So it's, you know, when I got the email about this, my first response, when I saw Genesis 11, one to nine was, oh, I've got weeks. I said, this isn't Friday evening, I've got weeks to prepare. Now, I'm not saying that I've spent weeks and weeks preparing just this, but I am uh, actually quite excited to look at this passage now. It's on page 8 in your church Bible. It's probably pretty close to page 8, whatever Bible you have, to be honest. Genesis chapter 11, and really what's happening here, again, I haven't heard the whole series, but from the titles, it looks like you're looking at the beginnings of lots of things. And as you're coming to Genesis 11, we're really coming to the end of the beginnings. Because the whole Bible begins in Genesis 1 to 11. It's kind of giving us a couple of thousand years worth of history to then give us the next couple of thousand years worth of history in the rest of the Bible. So it's covering a lot of ground, this first part. And really, you've probably noticed that Genesis 1 and 2 were incredibly positive. You know, it was good, 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 very good. The whole thing, the creation was wonderful. God was incredibly generous and kind, and it was great. But from Genesis 3 on, it feels like a bit of a train wreck, doesn't it? 
It just feels like one problem after another. The sons are killing each other. And then you've got, you know, the, the immorality in the world that causes God to send the flood. And now we're going to see the Tower of Babel that causes God to, to scatter the people by changing their language. It just feels like one judgment, one failure, one sin after another. And so as we come to Genesis 11, we're really coming to the end of the what should we call it, the primeval history. We're coming to the the end of the stage setting because after this passage, the stage is set and God's story can kick in. God's plan, God's uh, fulfillment of the promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15. He can work it out. And so it's important that we look at this passage because without this passage... It doesn't make sense. The world that we live in. Why are there so many people, so many languages, so many cultures, so much diversity? And it it feels like we're going to talk about languages. There's around 7,000 languages in the world today, apparently. That's quite a lot more than any of us speak, I would imagine. Actually, over half of the world's population are covered by 23 languages. So it's, you know, a lot of those 7,000 are hardly major. But 23 languages, that's a lot more than any of us speak. And so you've got these groups of languages all over the world. Where does that come from? Genesis 11 explains it. If you're into this kind of thing, you can research with the internet, you can find anything, but you can actually find some good, helpful uh, presentations on the internet about how the, the history of language doesn't make sense from an evolutionary point of view. With evolution as your mindset, then everything would start with one language and it would kind of emanate outwards. But it seems, as you look at the languages in the world, and you look at the history of it, and you can get into all the linguistics and all that sort of thing, it seems that there are groups of languages. It's almost like there were a whole set of languages to start with. And then other languages have developed from them, which supports what we see in Genesis 11. God created the confusion by having this whole set of languages. Okay, so let's look at the passage and see what's going on here. And actually, language is not really the focus. Language is the mechanism. It's the mechanism by which God gets his purposes fulfilled. But the real issue in this passage is much deeper, much more relevant than language. Let's start in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We'll pause there. So the the people are migrating, they're traveling, and they arrive in this great plain uh, of Shinar, which is sort of Iraq, roughly speaking, and and there they start to make bricks. And they make bricks using the materials that are available to them, and they make them extra solid, and they're very proud of their bricks. And so then they decide to build a city and a tower. So maybe get rid of the image if you've 
scene in a children's uh, Bible story book of this kind of crazy tower that is, um, you know, a million miles high. It was much more likely a, a ziggurat, like a sort of man-made mountain with, with layers. Quite impressive. But the point of it was, was to kind of keep them together. It was a, a declaration, essentially, of independence. God had made it clear in Genesis 1 when he created humans, that they were to fill the earth, multiplying and filling the earth. After the flood, Genesis 9 verse 1 and 9 verse 7, he wanted them to fill the earth and multiply. And instead, they're coming together. And their fear, as you see at the end of verse 4, is lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's a fear there. And rather than doing what God had told them to do, they united together and said, no, no, we can, we can do something here. We can, we can make a name for ourselves. We can, we can take these bricks and we can build a city and we can, we can build a tower and it can lift up its head to the heavens. It's kind of a, an arrogant statement. The whole issue here is pride. They're puffing out their chests and they're saying, we can be somebody. And that's where... Babylon begins with human pride, with that human inclination to gather together and to uh, be something incredibly special. The, the name Babylon in their language, originally it meant gate of God or gate of the gods, depending on how it was written. Uh, their view was that, that we here in this gathering, in this uh, place, we're, we're the ones that are bringing, uh, what should we say, uh, civilization into the world. This is a gift from heaven. Aren't we special? We're the ones that are giving organization and civilization and society to the world. Not that there was much world at this point, but, but that they had that kind of inclination. We're going to be famous. We're going to be the ones. We're going to have the name. We're going to have uh, the, the impression on history. And so in their pride, they built this city. Now, if you were to go back and look at Babylonian literature, which I haven't done. I've just been kind of reading other people that do. If you go back and look at the Babylonian literature, there's an incredible pride in it. A pride in who they are and in what they achieved. And, and that the tone of Genesis 11 is all through their history. But actually, you can turn that around because we've got Babylonian documents that are going way back into history. And Genesis 11 seems to be written with, with a whole host of, of deliberate wordings, deliberate ways of saying things that are kind of poking at the Babylonian history. Now, most of it we can't spot because we're reading the English. Uh, so, for example, the, the letters, basically three letters that, that constitute the, the name Babel. Those letters, or Babylon as we would think of it, but, but the B-L-N, those letters are all the way through this. If you were to read it in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's, it's incredible the amount of B-L-Ns that there are in the words that are being written here. It's almost like the writer is, is kind of mocking what the Babylonians had tried to achieve and their pride. That's not so obvious, but there's one that's really obvious that's coming up soon in verse 5. They had built a tower with its head up in the clouds, reaching up to the heavens. 
But when the Lord wanted to see it, he had to come down. Because they'd got nowhere near him. They'd got nowhere close. What is that little thing down there? Let me have a look. Oh. Oh yeah, it's a tower. God had to come down because all of human pride and hubris and all that we try to do, it amounts to precisely nothing before God. Because he's so much higher, so much bigger, so much better. So all of that kind of stuff is going on in this passage. From a human perspective, it's just an incredible amount of pride. God's given an instruction. We know better. And so we're going to make a city. We're going to build a tower. We are going to give the gate of God to the planet. That's where Babylon begins. And so God responds to that. Now, if if you've read the rest of the Bible, you kind of know that there's this principle all the way through. God opposes the proud. He's not a fan of our pride. There's a simple reason for that, because pride, in its essence, declares that I don't need you. That's my kind of working definition of pride. If my wife, uh, you know, kind of says, hey, it looks like we're lost, why don't you ask somebody for directions? If I say, I don't need directions, I think I can find it, she thinks I'm proud. I don't know where she gets that from. Right? If, if you're, you go to a child to help them, and say, no, no, I can do it. It's like, oh, careful, actually, you do need help. And here is humanity puffing out its chest and saying, God's given us instruction. We don't need him. We can make a name for ourselves. We can be somebody. We can do something. And he's not necessary. That's pride. It's pride whether we're shaking our fists at heaven or whether we're refusing to ask for directions when we're driving. I don't need you equals pride. And God, in his infinite compassion and love, knows that that is a disaster for his creatures. He knows that if we puff out our chests and shake our fists at heaven and declare that I've got money, I've got you know, resources, I've got intellect, I can do this, I don't need you, then actually that's the worst possible thing for us to be doing, to be saying, for us to be feeling. And so therefore, when there's pride, God opposes it. It's not that God is proud and he doesn't like anyone else being proud. To listen to some people, that is kind of their theology. Don't go treading on God's toes because he wants all the glory for himself. I don't think that's the issue at all. I think the real issue is that God loves his creation. And he knows that if we walk down the path of pride, we're walking far away from him. And so what does he do? Verse 5, God acts. Basically, what we're going to see is that what man builds up, God tears down. Our construction is just a setup for his destruction. So verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel or Babel. 
Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So human pride puffs up and God thwarts. That's what's happening. Human pride builds and God tears down. God steps in. God gets involved. You kind of look at it and you say, well, he's thwarting them. He's undermining their plans. He's dispersing them across the world. The way he does it is very clever. If they can't understand each other, they won't hang out with each other. You might have noticed that. It's hard to do business with people you can't understand. It's hard to live with people you don't understand. And so by changing the languages, they spread out. And so I suppose, in in one sense, you look at that passage and you say, well, there's a very simple principle there. Something that we should take on board just as individuals. When humans are proud, God tears them down. God opposes the proud. And, And if that's all you get from this message, that's okay because that's not bad. That's biblical and it's worth it. If you're going to go into this week thinking, I can handle things without God, or I'm going to do this even though I know it's wrong, or I'm going to you know, follow through on plan X, Y, and Z when God has said do A, B, and C, if that's your plan, God can take you down and it, it's better that he does. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so that in itself is an important principle, although there's no hint of grace in this passage. I'm the one talking about love and grace. This just feels like judgment, doesn't it? We'll come to that. So, what's going on in this passage? In one sense, I suppose that there's, there's that obvious lesson that human pride leads to God tearing down, God humbling. I suppose you you could look at it and you could say, actually, more than that, there's an issue here of who's in charge. All of humanity comes together and says, we determine to do this. And within five verses, God says, no, back to my plan. That's an important thing, isn't it? That even if we unite together in opposition to God, like Psalm 2, for example, where all the nations come together to oppose the Lord and his anointed, what is God's response to that? If all, imagine the scene, all the armies coming together saying, we're going to deal with this God. God laughs. It's pathetic. There's no comparison. There's no fight. It's not, it's not even a fair fight. It's not a fight. There's nothing going on there. God laughs at the arrogance of humanity when we think we can throw him off. And so that's overt. That's there in the passage. God's plan is that they disperse. They say, no, we won't. God says, yes, you will. Who wins? God does. Because God is God and we are not. And these very basic kind of principles are so... uh, They're so basic that sometimes we don't say them. But honestly, if every one of us would take on board, pride leads to God opposing me, humility leads to God exalting me, that would make our lives better, wouldn't it? If we would take on board, God's got a plan and it's going to happen, no matter how much I oppose it, that would help us. And even if we said, actually, biblically, God has got a plan, and no matter how much this world opposes it, his plan will be uh, fulfilled, that can encourage us when you're watching the news. 
Open your Bible and go, oh yeah, he's got a plan. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. He knows what he's doing. Those kind of basic principles are, are worth pausing on and, and taking on board, aren't they? Pride and the plan and so on. But there's something that seems to be missing here. I've already hinted at it because I couldn't help myself. But the, the thing that's missing here is there's really no hint of God's grace. Now, what I mean by that is, uh, back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and God showed up, what did he do? He clothed them. It's sort of a, a pictorial representation of grace. Of, of how sin is going to be dealt with and, and the kind of atonement and death and so on. It's quite a, a vivid image, but he kills an animal and that's the introduction of death before their eyes and he clothes them in blood-dripping clothes. But it's grace. It's getting them to realize that we've sinned, it's serious, the wages of sin is death, but God is going to work it out. There's some grace in the midst of judgment. You come forward with Cain and Abel and there's all the kind of uh, fallout of what happened there. But then there's this language of a mark to protect in the midst of what was happening. You come forward to the flood. There's an ark in the midst of the flood. God's judging the world, but he provides a way for eight people. Could have been more, but eight went on the ark and survived. God's way is the only way to uh, survive impending judgment. And then as they came out of the ark, there's the great rainbow in the sky as a declaration of God's promise that he would never destroy the earth with water again. And so in all of these passages, there's there's judgment and there's God's power and God's strength, but there's also kind of a token of his grace and his kindness. The clothing, the mark, the ark, the rainbow. And then here, God steps in and he judges, they disperse, and the curtain drops. And you're left with this feeling of, hang, hang on a minute. It can't be just judgment. If it's just judgment, we're finished. If it's just judgment, we're without hope. But I think maybe the reason there's no hint of it here is because we're, 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 we're looking for it. We're waiting for it. And it's going to come in next week's passage. Once the peoples are dispersed across the world and and it's clear and it's evident that God has said, my plans will be fulfilled. When I say fill the earth, I'm not joking. He makes that happen and then there's this kind of sense of, hang on a minute, but what next? I suppose you could make that even stronger. If you take a whole group of people that have gathered together to make a name for themselves, to oppose God and to resist his plan, and they've built a city where they can live together in society, and there's a tower to reach up to the heavens, all the markings of pride, and then you disperse them, what do you get? Well, you get towns with towers all over the world, don't you? If you just disperse the people with different languages, you're going to have some people speaking one way and some people speaking another way. But the DNA of human pride is going to be shot through everything they do. And so what do we expect to see all over the earth? We expect to see gatherings of humans seeking to make a name for themselves. 
living together in so-called society that is full of promise, full of come here, get to the big city, imagine what it's going to be like, you can make your fortune, you can whatever, you know, and, and what is the reality of that? We've got a whole load of cities across the world that are just rotten to the core. I remember years ago being in L.A., I was with the OM ship, came to L.A., and friend and I wanted to go and see Hollywood Boulevard. Why not? You know, it's the whole of L.A. feels like a film set anyway. Let's go see Hollywood Boulevard. So, long story, we ended up getting kind of a, I don't know if it was a, a, an XOMer or, or an angel, but some guy showed up in a car and, and, and kind of pulled us into the car. He said, it's not safe walking around South Central L.A., which actually he was quite right. And he drove us up and, and dropped us in Hollywood Boulevard with instructions of how to get the bus to a certain place and phone him, and he would take us back to the ship. I've never seen a car arrive so quickly. But I phoned him, he was there, get in, get in, and off we went. But, but I remember that feeling of Hollywood Boulevard, just the darkest place. It is drugs and, and homeless and, uh, and sin in your face. The whole thing just felt empty, like all the glitz and the glamour and the shine, all the promise of Hollywood. If only we can make it to Hollywood, you get there and you say, Really? This is like a hole. This is horrible. In fact, it felt oppressively dark. Isn't that what the world is full of? Big cities with bright, shiny lights making all sorts of promise. But as people come to those cities, they discover how empty they are. It's like when you see a soap bubble, you know, a big soap bubble with all the colors of the rainbow. And it looks just magical and amazing. And then you try to get a hold of it and it's gone. That's what human society is like, isn't it? If you can just make it to this town, if you can just get a break, if you can just be noticed by an agent, if you can just get a job, if, 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 and what is it that we find when we go to big cities? Unless there is major investment to rescue it, they die from the inside out. Because there's no life there. Human society is just a whole load of Babylons all over the world. And so God disperses them, and we now have a globe full of mini Babylons. That's pretty bleak, isn't it? So thankfully, you're going to come back next week, and you're going to find that in chapter 12, God's got a plan. In the midst of all these dispersed people, he's going to take somebody, and he's going to say something, and he's going to do something, and I'm not going to give away next week's message. But I do want us to think about the particular themes of Babylon just for a moment because what we've just read in these first nine verses we find right the way through the Bible. Let's just take a few minutes to to trace those. All through the Old Testament, for example, the idea of foreign languages is connected to judgment. It, It makes sense, right? If you hear foreign language at the gates, it means that you've got enemies who are about to destroy you. And so foreign languages in the Old Testament is a a kind of a a code for destruction and judgment. As you go through the Old Testament, you find references like, uh, uh, where are we, Isaiah 13 and 14, or Jeremiah 50 and 51, talking about Babylon, this city 
that goes back and traces its roots right back to the Tower of Babel. It traces its roots back there, but the city of Babylon is kind of a focus. And you sometimes wonder, is this the literal city of Babylon? Or is this the, the idea of Babylon that is kind of global? And honestly, I would lean more towards literal when I'm reading the prophets. It just feels like it works, but it kind of works both ways. But what God is saying is, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to judge. I'm going to deal with it. That city is not going to have the final word. Let me just take you to Zephaniah, just because I can. Zephaniah. If you get to the New Testament, you've gone too far. And uh, don't worry if you don't want to find it. I'll just read it to you. Zephaniah is this uh, prophet that's talking about the coming day of the Lord when God is going to step in and, and, and grace and judgment are all going to kind of mingle in this amazing future event. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, listen, listen to the Genesis 11 themes that are coming through in verse 9 and following. Anticipating the future, God says, for at that time I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech. So instead of lots of languages, there's going to be a purity of language. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That's what unity should be for, right? To serve him. For from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. There is dispersed humanity with a specific focus returning. Verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. This just feels like Genesis 11, doesn't it? In reverse. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. It's like the great themes of, of Babel are now being reversed by God's goodness. Now as in future. What, what Babel did in dispersing God in the future is going to reverse and bring people together in terms of language, but also in terms of attitude, in terms of heart response and obedience to him. It's the kind of thing that when you read it, you, you go, ooh, that sounds good. Go on, God, do it. We want to see you do that because everything we see around us is going in the wrong direction and God's promising to reverse that and put things in the right direction. Okay, that was maybe a bit obscure for us. How about Acts 2? Acts chapter 2, remember that? After Jesus was crucified and uh, buried and rose again, fast forward seven weeks and you get to the, the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, people from all sorts of different places, there's 15 listed, uh, that come together to Jerusalem. And there they are in Jerusalem when the Spirit of God falls on those first believers. And the church is born and it's born in the midst of languages. Only now it's languages that are being understood. It's not one weird language, it's at least 15. Because the people from Rome recognized their language, and the people from Mesopotamia recognized their language, and they were hearing, and they were hearing about God, and they were being united together as the, the, the confusion of languages was being reversed into a clarification of languages. This is kind of Babel in reverse. 
This is God working to bring together his people, to bring them into unity with one another. It's interesting, isn't it? Back in Genesis 11, verse 6, God's comment, when he comes down and he sees the the kind of puny tower in the little city, he makes one comment that's quite striking. If they work together, they can achieve anything. Now, keep that in its context. He's not saying they can do things, you know, bigger than him or anything like that. But he's literally saying, "This, this is dangerous, Unity without the purity of heart, unity without obedience to God, it it can be devastating. But once you reverse that, what do we have all through the New Testament? Encouragement to believers to be united together. Because we are part of God's Babel reversal plan. Right? We're part of what he's doing in the world post-Pentecost. And so as we are united together, there is a power in that unity as we love one another. When Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He wasn't just making a pragmatic suggestion. He was saying, that's my distinguishing characteristic. And so if you have that for one another, then you will obviously be my people. But in the same way as that is his distinguishing characteristic, that the loving unity is a source of power for the church. And yet we're so good at being divided, aren't we? So good at bearing grudges and tearing down and criticizing, and yet the New Testament is practically screaming at us. Please be united. Love one another. It's not just a suggestion. It's critical to the plan of God in this age. And then we come to Revelation, and we've got to go to Revelation. I'm sure you've been to Revelation most weeks in this series, uh, in some form or other, because really, I don't want us just to talk about the beginning of Babylon. I'd much rather think about the fall of it. So, first of all, Revelation 5, just a, a little quick passing reference to the fact that in heaven, that throne room scene, where they're falling down before the Lamb, and there's this incredible worship going on. They're singing a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation celebrates the reversal of the confusion of Babel. Where language created division, Revelation says, but God is able to rescue from that. He's able to pull people together. So that even now, when we're in a mixed gathering of Christians and we're singing different languages. I was at a wedding in Barcelona recently. And we're singing one verse in English and one verse in Spanish. And I didn't really know what was going on, but it was great. Because that's kind of what God does. He brings people together. And they they may speak different languages, but there's a beautiful unity. Who knows, maybe even someone from Northern Ireland and someone from England. Is there any marriages like that? You know, weird. Even maybe an English person and an American, totally different language. And yet we're able to be united together. God's got a beautiful plan. And, And as you come to the end of the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 17, and you get another two chapter chunk of text about Babylon. Is it Babylon DNA that has uh, infiltrated the world system? Yes. Is it Babylon actual rebuilt city in the future? Quite possibly. But one doesn't preclude the other. 
And so when you get to 17, it talks about this horrific beast and, and the great prostitute, whore, and, and it's just a horrible, horrible chapter describing this kind of devouring, monstrous, idolatrous, immoral grossness that this world has to offer. It's like when you strip back the church and take the church out, what you get to see on earth is hideously ugly. But it's not bad news because this is where the whole thing falls apart. So chapter 18, I just want to read a few highlights as we finish. This is future. John watching. He says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Just let those words soak for a moment. It's not even possible, but try in your mind to imagine all of human society all across the world, all through history, shaking its fist at God and saying, we've got a better plan, we can do things our way, we don't need you, we've got this. And all of the ugliness and all of the emptiness and all of the uh, empty promises and all of the bubbles that people have grabbed and discovered are just full of air. All of the lies and all of the cheating and all of the crime and all of the, the kind of dodgy business deals that have taken advantage of people and all of the human trafficking and everything that's gross in this world... And then John hears this announced. It's finished. It's fallen. That system is done. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. When you see that, when you see wealth and power taking advantage of others, doesn't it make you feel sick? Getting glimpses of that constantly, aren't we, on television and interviews and all sorts of things. And you go, oh, what is going on? Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Babylon, they tried to build a tower to reach to the heavens. They failed. But the sins reached to the heavens. And so God is aware of all of that. He knows everything that's happened. He knows every sin, every lie that's been told, everything that's gone on behind closed doors. And and God is going to deal with it. And as this chapter progresses, we haven't got time to read it all, but I'd encourage you to read this because this is a message of hope. That everything that's wrong about this world, everything that's got the Babylon DNA in it, of human pride and rebellion against God is going to be taken care of. Look at verse 16. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And it goes on to talk about business and, and trade and all that kind of stuff. And you come down to the end of the chapter and it says, verse 21, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
and the sound of musicians and the sound of craftsmen and the sound of the mill and the light of a lamp and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride, all of the human parties and celebrations and normal life that have been right at the core of human society with God kept on the outside, all of that is going to come to an end. And then you come to chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They cry out again, Hallelujah. The 24 elders, the four living creatures shout, Amen, Hallelujah. This is the Hallelujah chorus right here, isn't it? Once Babylon is gone, all praise can go to him. And once the the prostitution, the, the, the selling of the soul of humanity is taken out, then there's space for another wedding. The bride of Christ and the Lamb coming together at the marriage supper. It's a beautiful passage. And it's written to inspire us. And so we can look back to the beginning of Babel, Babylon, this, this gathering of human pride, and we can say, oh, wow, look at that. Yeah, when we are proud, God opposes pride. When they were proud, God scattered them. His plans were fulfilled despite their best efforts against him. But we're living in a world of Babylons, a world of societies making empty promises and destroying people all around. A world of of nice, shiny bubbles that become nothing the moment you grasp a hold of them. And all of the emptiness and all of the pain and all of the sin and all of the heartache and all of the, uh, the, the injustice of the whole thing, it feels so wrong and so bad, but there is a day coming when Babylon will be done. When that system will be finished. And here we are, kind of looking back to the beginning and looking forward to the fall and living currently in the midst of a very Babylonian world where pride is all around us and where hurt is constant, where corruption is behind every door of power as far as we can tell. And what do we do? How do we live in the midst of this? By looking to God's word. And taking the basic principles that it gives us to heart and saying, I can't fix my city, but I can humble my heart. I can't fix society, but I can love Jesus and I can love others. And we can be part of God's incredible plan to work out all families of the earth being blessed because of Jesus. And so I invite us, as we think about Genesis 11 and as we think about the whole canon of Scripture, to just bow our hearts before God. Maybe you need to say sorry. Maybe you've been caught up in the world's way of thinking and in, the, in human pride. Maybe there's something specific that the Spirit of God is putting His finger on in your life. Bow your heart before Him and say, Lord, I want to humble myself before you need to humble me. I bow before you. I thank you for being a God who gives hope in a hopeless world, who thwarts pride and will do whatever it takes to fulfill your plans. Amen.